John chapter 16, verses 19 to 33. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet, I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Uh, good to see you. Happy New Year, if I haven't seen you since uh, the New Year. And uh, it's good to have you at church this morning. Uh, the next three weeks, as we kind of slowly ramp up for the New Year, we have a, a short little series called Big Questions. And this morning, after we kind of address our first question. Now, the, the purpose of this series is uh, twofold. One is, I guess, to help us um, answer the question at hand, you know, to think about the interaction of the Christian faith with this part of our, our culture. But, and that's, I guess, for you who are here. But it's also to help you have um, conversations and explore the Christian faith with those around you who are still, still doing that themselves. Uh, to help you in that, actually, if you open up the booklets this morning, which you received as you came in, you will find in there, um, I think, uh, page three and four, four and five. Uh, page four and five are two separate kind of like 
um, resources for a discussion over a coffee or you know over dinner or something like that. They're not Bible studies. They're quite different to Bible studies. In fact, you'll notice there's hardly any reference to the Bible in them, apart from maybe the last question. Uh, they're actually just opportunities for someone who's uh, thinking about these questions to think them through with you. Uh, if you've done the Alpha course, they're probably more in line with that model of um, discussion. Uh, my suggestion is a couple of things. You should bring them to church to hear the talks. I mean, today you can still do that in our night congregation because that's starting again this, this week, uh, to hear those. Uh, or if, uh, if that's not possible uh, or feasible, then perhaps sending them a link to the, to the talk. But then to follow it up, actually, because we really don't think that the talk in itself is going to be that helpful, um, but it might land as a, might be a launch pad into a conversation which is really helpful. And so have a coffee with someone, use those questions. It's not intended to be a very intense conversation. It's really just a chewing of the fat of the ideas that are raised in this which we hope is a bit of a stepping stone for you um, exploring this, uh, the, the Christian faith uh, with, this, with, your, with your friends, family and neighbours. So I flagged that resource for you at the start of the series and we'll have that over the next three weeks uh, for each of the talks and you might want to return back to a previous one and use those um, studies in line with that. Well, today, uh, as we start, let me, let me just uh, draw you to you know, one of the things that's one of my loves, cricket, of course. Uh, I, was at the, I was at the test match uh, a week and a half ago, and at the start of the game, there's a moment where the MC, uh, you know, we, we have national anthems for the two teams that are playing, but they do a little, um, a, a little spiel, a little introduction to kind of frame everything. It's kind of a behaviour management tool as well, but it, it is really interesting. The guy, James Sherry, who did it, he had a, a script, he wasn't making this up, he was reading this, and this is what he said. He said, cricket is a sport for all. We welcome all fans and participants, regardless of their background, their identity, their beliefs or choices. We provide a safe space for everyone to come together and connect and to feel respected, and we thank you all for playing your part. Now, this, this is a very interesting um, opening to a cricket match because it has nothing to do with the game, of course, at all. But it has so much to do with the culture that we live in. I think... Uh, Almost every word, apart from maybe the first sentence, which is arguable, um, it, it has something to tell us about the society we live in. And you, you, could do, you could spend weeks actually unpacking many of the phrases, and we're not going to do that. But I do think that this provides us with perhaps an answer to the question that we're exploring this morning. The question for this week is, are we softer? Are we as a society softer? And what does Jesus have to say about pain and pleasure? Now, the question, as I kind of hinted at last week, is perhaps a question which you might answer based on your generation, your upbringing, etc., your cultural background, ethnic background. But here's the thing. I think there's an answer in, even in this little opening salvo at the cricket to answer this question. And it's in that phrase, we provide a safe space for everyone. Safety, I think, is a crucial value in our society. And if we're saying softer to the extent that we mean are we a society that's a bit more anxious, a bit more adverse to pain and discomfort? Are we a society that's less resilient, uh, that really is, uh, works hard to ensure that uh, we don't encounter too much discomfort? Are we a society that has a soft underbelly? 
I think if that is the question that we're asking, then I, I personally think the answer is yes. I think we are a society that is softer in that sense. Now, there's, there's of course, different forms of softness. Uh, there's a tenderness. Softness could be tenderness. But I'm just not really talking about that, although that might also be true. And depending on how you define the phrase, so, the word soft in that question, you'll have different answers, and, and I think there's, there's good and bad soft. But to the extent that we're talking about a society which is maybe less resilient, more anxious, more fearful, has that kind of soft underbelly, I think that that's true. I think we are a, a society that's getting softer. Are we getting softer? I think the answer is yes. Uh, but I, and being soft in itself is not a bad thing, maybe, but for the fact that it might reflect something even more um, pathological about us. Frank Farrell Faridi has written a whole heap of books. He's a bit of a social, he's a conservative social commentator. He's not a Christian, but he's written a lot of books about the topic of fear. And this is what he has to say. He says, The defining feature of the current Western 21st century version of personhood is its vulnerability. Now, if you're an older person, that sounds like a negative. But actually, if you're a younger person, that's not a negative at all. And I think most young people I meet, most millennials and Gen Zers who I would speak to would say, yeah, actually, and that's a good thing. Vulnerability is a good thing. It's, a, it's tied to a sense of authenticity, about being real. It's, it's not pretending to be something you're not. right? But then he goes on to say, and if vulnerability is indeed the defining feature of the human condition, it follows that being fearful is the normal state. And he says, actually, our, our understanding of personhood now is very much through the lens of vulnerability. And that in itself is not a negative, but the flow-on impact is that we are people who are fearful, even in our normal state. Even in our normal state. And I think that this is perhaps what's most problematic about um, about kind of the soft cult, the softness in our culture, is it reflects perhaps a deeper fearfulness in our culture. And when I was maybe 20, 30 years ago, we used to often laugh at the phenomenon of helicopter parenting. If you don't know what this is, this is the parent who kind of buzzes around their child about a metre and a half away, wherever they go. That used to be a phenomenon because it was more unusual, but it's kind of regular now, so we don't even call it that. That's just parenting. Okay, But we don't... Look, it's a bit unfair to have a go at just parents as people who are, are kind of reflective of a, a softness or a softening in our culture, a growing fear and anxiety in our culture, because it's actually everywhere. It just shows out in different ways. I asked a friend uh, last week this question. I said to him, do you think that we are getting soft? He said, absolutely. I, I said to him, where do you see this exhibited, thinking that he'd probably talk about parenting or something like that, being a parent himself. He said, no, 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 I think you see it in debt accumulation. I said, really? He said, debt accumulation, because he said, we're a society that really dislikes um, discomfort. Right? We're very worried about being uncomfortable. And so we'll actually accumulate debt in order to buffer ourselves from any kind of discomfort. You know, the idea that we might have to go through a year without holidays is, is unpalatable, and so we will just kind of rack up a bill on our credit card and go on the holiday anyway. 
the idea that we might have to um, we might have to live in a suburb that is a little bit more unsafe than another is unpalatable. So we'll just work harder and earn more money and maybe accumulate a slightly different debt of time and energy in order to live in a safer part of the world. And so I think, I think he's actually right. And I think the data backs it up. There was an American survey created, uh, undertaken last year, the Intuit Prosperity Survey. They said 73% of Gen Zers would rather accrue debt than save for a bleak future. They'd rather accrue debt than save for a bleak future. They'd rather spend their money now. They'd rather have the smashed avo sandwich than the mortgage down the track. And that's because the idea of enduring discomfort now is really not just unpalatable, but something that we really, really are afraid of. And I think that is what's problematic. Jonathan Haidt was a, a New York writer, uh, not a Christian guy, but wrote a very interesting book uh, called The Coddling of the American Mind. And he talks about this, this transition that he feels he's seen, particularly in academic circles, out of which we get the language of cancelling, out of which we get language about um, trigger warnings and safetyism. And Jonathan Haidt says, at the basis of this thinking is three untruths, one of which he describes as this, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Now, if you know your philosophy, Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, which is also problematic. But he says, now we actually live in this world where the untruth is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. We're genuinely afraid of discomfort. We don't even just want to avoid it, we're afraid of it. It's, it's damaging to us damaging to us. And, uh, and I think that this is, this is problematic on a number of levels. I think the softness that we're talking about here and this progression further toward it is actually not helpful for us for a number of reasons. Firstly, I think it ref doesn't reflect a reality of discomfort and hardship in life. Jesus, in our little, in our little excerpt that we, we selected to read from for this morning from John 16, if you don't know where this is from, this is from a little moment just where Jesus is having his last meal with his disciples and he's only a matter of hours from being arrested and then ending up crucified, uh, right? And Jesus is preparing his disciples for life when he goes. And he says through this whole speech, he's really he's saying, look, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to suffer, People are not going to agree with you. They're going to think that actually they're worshipping God by killing you. Life is going to be hard. But he includes a very interesting insight. Early on in this morning's reading, he talks about childbirth. He says, A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when the child is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. And Jesus is articulating a principle here, which I think is interesting and worth reflecting on in our question, which is that sometimes pain begets joy. Sometimes hardship is actually what grows and strengthens us as people. This is not just a... Um, it's not just something that Christians should believe. It's actually just something built into the fabric of the world, says Jesus. 
you're going to suffer. But remember the fabric of the world that sometimes actually hardship, pain, discomfort is beneficial in the long run for you. And so I think a society that's softening is losing the benefit of hardship at times. Losing the benefit of it. I mean, take, for example, an astronaut. Like an astronaut, while they're in space and they're in a zero-G climate, what happens to their muscles? They atrophy, right? So they actually come back to Earth. Despite all the exercises they do, they come back to Earth and they have to rehabilitate their body to be able to operate in um, an environment where there's gravity. Because actually, the human body is created for that natural resistance that gravity provides us with. That's a trivial example, but here's Richard McNally, who's the director of training at Harvard's um, School of Psychology. He's a psychologist. He's not just like some kind of crazy um, right-wing conservative or something like that. He is like a, he's a, this guy's trained in the psychology and the treatment of psychological disorders, and this is what he says. His trigger warnings, which we're very comfortable with now in our society, trigger warnings, are counter-therapeutic, he actually says, because they encourage avoidance of reminders of trauma and avoidance maintains PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, this is, this is our constant practice. We want to protect ourselves from the reminder of something that's been bad or difficult in our past. Now, he's not saying trauma is okay, right? But he's saying the way that you move through trauma is not by protecting yourself from it and no longer reminding yourself from it. He actually says, no, a good psychologist is someone who, in manageable forms, introduces the person to their trauma so that they can move past it. And in a sense, I think this is what's very problematic about a softening of society, which is a softening that reflects a growing anxiety, a growing fearfulness, a growing avoidance of discomfort and displeasure. It really is not a great outcome. And so, yes, I, think, I personally think the answer to the question is, yes, we're getting softer, and my addition is that is a bad thing. That's a bad thing. But what's the answer? I know, I'm pretty sure I know what some people in this building will say. They'll say, well, we just need to toughen up. Toughen up. Harden up. In fact, I had a, um, I had a uh, marshal like a, the, the, at school. This is the guy who was in charge of discipline. I went to a boys' school back in the day, you know, and uh, he was a Green Beret in the English uh, military. He's a very strict gentleman. Um, and he used to have this saying, say, ah, sunshine, just take a spoon of concrete and harden up. <laughs> this, is, this was his solution pretty much to any gripe that a student brought to him. Just take a spoon of concrete and harden up. Now, you laugh, but some of you are thinking, yes. <laughs> Finally, those millennials, there's a great lamb ad at the moment. If you've not seen it, Google it. A lamb ad about generational gaps. <laughs> and you know what they're thinking. Here's the thing. I understand why people say this, right? It's not actually a new concept. Like, we might attribute this to, like, you know, the post-war generation who had to go through a world war and, and therefore endured great hardship. We might say, oh, that's why they do... But actually, this model of dealing with pain is not new in the, in the, in the, um, in the philosophical realm. This has been around for thousands of years. It's just what we call stoicism. 
You know, where we say, I, I refuse to let the world around me impact me. Uh, it's not just a philosophical view, it's actually a religious view too. So a lot of Eastern religions are very much down this track. Buddhism, for example, it, no Buddhist would say take a spoon of concrete and harm. They're much too sophisticated to say that. What they would say, though, is do not attach yourself to anything. And if you do that, then you will ensure that you will be able to get through life with its suffering. Buddhists totally believe in suffering. But the way you deal with suffering is by detaching yourself from everything. And, and, and on, one, on one level, that will actually, that might be helpful for you. You might be able to navigate. But I think it will kill something else in you. It will kill something else in you, which is the capacity to love. Concrete might make you protective, but it will protect you from the capacity to love other people. You will not be able to connect. It's interesting, actually, even in the Buddhist um, philosophy of life, there, there is a sense in which you find a balance, but the balance is a-relational. It's not connected to people. And so you might even have certain virtues in your life, but they're not practiced for the sake of other people because then you're tying them yourself to them, you see. And this is what Stoicism too is. It's a, it's a way of protecting yourself. I had a friend who said she would never get married. Why? Because she didn't want to risk the, uh, the, the heartache of marriage failing, right? Now, now, you're not happy because you're married, you're not married, but you do understand there's some, that's indicative of losing something, isn't it? If you live like that. You are trading something off by living with that kind of that hardness. So as much as part of us is inclined to say, yes, I, I, I want to kind of harden up, that's not the answer. And you notice what Jesus says in this passage as he deals with the disciples, and it's verse 33 that for me is the key verse, is the verse that Pippi used in her spotlight segment too. For me, I mean, we could do a whole, unpack the whole story of this passage, but we've done that in last year and we did John, and I really just want to make it accessible for us today uh, and use this verse as the key. But look at what Jesus says in verse 3. He says, I have told you these things, so I've told you all the hardships you're going to go through, so that you may have peace. What? I have told you how hard life is so that you have peace. That's so counterintuitive. It's not the way we... That's not a safetyism right there, is it? But he says, in this world you will have trouble. You see, Jesus, he's not running... It is not stoicism. This is not a detachment from life, right? This is, and this is, an, this is embracing the reality of life. This is, this is not just harden up. Life will be hard for you, says Jesus. And Jesus is a very empathetic person and so you can imagine as he says this that his empathy which he shows in other aspects of the gospel is here in these words. He says, you will have life. You will have trouble. Now, and I think what we... I just really want to bring this home because I think sometimes we, we come to a question like this and we have our own experiences of life and how we've managed hardship, for example, and we attribute to them some kind of moral superiority if we're someone who is a bit of the, on the harden-up end of spectrum, we'll say, well, that's what the Bible kind of is calling us to, is to, to be someone who's a bit more robust and hardened. hardened. And if we're someone who, on the other side who's experienced the kind of harshness of a hard person, 
We'll say, no, 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 the Bible's calling us to compassion and vulnerability, and so we find a, a sense of moral rightness in our way of dealing with it. But actually what we see is that, that it's not soft, it's not hard. These are not the, it's not like one or the other. It's, in fact, neither of them. I want us to see that. Jesus is offering us a slightly different solution to this question of how do you deal with this world with its trouble. And see what he goes on to say uh, in the next part of this verse. He says, take heart. Actually, the better translation, I've used this because it's what's in your Bible translation, but the better translation in the old Bible is, be of good courage. Be of good courage. Jesus says it's not about being vulnerable, it's not about being tough, it's about being courageous. It's about being courageous. That's a different mindset to either of those two things. It is not the fear and defeatism of vulnerability. It's not the uh, self-contained strength of toughness. It's courage. It's a, it's a different thing. And perhaps the best example of courage is Jesus himself, who in a matter of hours after this will go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I know that part of us, our, our cultural inclination might be to say, oh, Jesus is someone who just toughens it out, but he doesn't really in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like, he's in tears. Sorrow to the point of death, tell the Bible, Bible writers, those who saw him in action. This is the great king of heaven and earth, but he's on his knees, he's begging at this point. And you must say, if you read those accounts, while he's willing to go to the cross... He certainly in no way relishes the task. No way. He is not some superhero for whom this, this impending um, colossal moment of suffering has no impact on him. Of course it does. In fact, he says, if you're able, take this cup from me. And yet, of course he doesn't, does he? He steps into that moment. Because there's something more important than his own safety that is, of course, the heat writer Hebrew says, for the joy set before him, for the salvation of you and I, he endured the cross. See, courage, with Jesus as the lens, is this decision willingly with an open view to the danger and the, the fear and the anxiety that a situation presents us. It's a willingness to step into it, nonetheless, for the sake of others and for the glory of God. That's, that's what... The Bible is encouraging people to be instead courageous. Courageous like Christ. That's what Jesus says, but take heart. Be of good courage in view of the world you live in. How do you do that though? Interestingly, he doesn't say, be of good courage. You can do it. I really believe in you guys. I've taught you really well. You can do this. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, be of, be, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. How are you courageous, you see, in Jesus' teaching, in the Gospels shaped to life? You are only courageous because you take your eyes off yourself, actually, and you look at Jesus. The only way you actually can encounter suffering in a sustainable, real and transformative way the Bible tells us, the only way you can encounter pain and discomfort in the world with courage is actually not by looking at yourself, but looking at Jesus. And why is looking at Jesus worthwhile? Because he says, I've overcome the world. 
I've overcome the world. Now that's, I understand if you're someone who is new to Christianity, you're still, you're still testing the waters on it, that is just a platitude. It's empty. It's just a guy saying, hey, I'm strong enough for you. Rest on me. Lean on me. You'll never be alone. It is unless you really know who Jesus is. But if you really know who he is, then you really do believe he's overcome the world. After he gives this speech, after they have this meal, and he goes to the cross and he plunges into the depths of pain, Jesus establishes his, his overcoming of the world. And he, I just want to leave us with three reasons why you can really believe that Jesus has overcome the world. Firstly, the resurrection. The gospel is not the story of a man on his knees, weeping blood, tears of blood and dying on a cross alone. It is the story of that man rising three days later, of leaving uh, a, what John Dixon calls a resurrection dent in history, transforming the history of the world. A man who was dead for three days, risen from the dead. A man who overcomes the single greatest enemy for any other person, which is death. And it means not only that his overcoming is an overcoming of death, it means that it's a continual overcoming because now we call on him not as this great example in the past who lived and then died and was gone, but who now lives and reigns. And so when you look to Christ, you look to the living man himself, seated at the right hand of God, says the Bible. You see how this is so different to you can do it, when you look at Jesus, you're looking at someone wholly different to yourself. Wholly different. But you can also believe that Jesus has overcome the world because you see the impact of the gospel in the spread of the gospel through the early church. You've got to remember, these are 11 scared men and a group of women and children gathered around in an upper room after the death of Jesus. Within 30 years, that gospel and those people have spread out of Jerusalem and to the edges of the Roman Empire. How does that happen? Unless this message about this person is uniquely different and powerful. I have overcome the world, says Jesus. But I think also you see the testimony to the power of God in the life of his saints here and now. It's the personal testimony of people who have experienced the great peace of God in their life, in the midst of suffering. It's that, that peace that passes all understanding, says the Apostle Paul, which comes to you in spite of your circumstances, not because you've manipulated your circumstances to grant you peace. There's many examples. I could get a, uh, I could get a member of the congregation up and they could testify to this. But let me leave you with the example of, of uh, the American slaves, many of whom became Christians, having come, been brought across to the American continent. And you know, what's really interesting about those academics who've studied slavery in America is they, they, they attribute the resilience of the slaves to their Christian faith, actually. They, so much of their life was these, these Christian spiritual hymns that they sang 
And these stories were the things that allowed them to look at the world in spite of the harshness and cruelty that they encountered and be able to endure through it. Because that was the impact that the gospel story had on their life. Here's what one, here's what one, uh, one academic, Howard Thurman, who's an African-American scholar at Boston University, says. It taught people, that is, Christianity taught the slaves of America. It taught people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that their environment, with all its cruelty, would not crush. That's, that's their story, but that's the story of many, many people who call Jesus Christ Lord. Because they have shifted their gaze from himself or even from the world around to Jesus who says, I have overcome the world. And I think, I think that's a wholly different way to encounter the world, which subverts the decline into some kind of fearful malaise, malaise but also doesn't respond to it with like a harshness and a hardness, but finds a new tenderness and courage that comes from the love of God. I, uh, I, commend, uh, I commend this topic as a topic of discussion. I really hope that some people will use this uh, with, their, with those around them who are exploring the Christian faith and uh, they, will, they will use it as an opportunity to explore Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for your grace and kindness to us. And we thank you that in the Lord Jesus we see someone who could encounter the... the the pain and the discomfort, the great horror of this world at times, and rather than collapsing underneath that or hardening himself to it, was one who courageously stepped into and through it for us. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you might grant us a rich vision of Jesus, which would give us courage knowing that he has overcome the world.